Hello, and welcome to Intelligent Squared, where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adabita. Coming up on the podcast, the enduring power of Jane Austen. We invite a panel of acclaimed writers to discuss how the author's seven novels have shaped literature for over two centuries. This recording is an Intelligent Squared event in partnership with Sotheby's, which took place at Sotheby's in London. Our guests coming up include Helen Fielding, creator of the Bridget Jones novels and films, and Jill Hornby, author of the bestseller, Miss Austen. They'll be joining Sotheby's books specialist, Kanika Sands, and novelist, Kate Moss. It's a stellar lineup, and they all had a lot to say. Now let's join our chair for this event, the novelist and writer, Kate Moss. Well, hello, everybody. How wonderful to see so many people here. Uh, I'm Kate Moss. I'm a novelist, playwright and writer of history. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to this talk at Sotheby's in London, uh, which is in partnership with Intelligence Squared and is part of Sotheby's Book Week, which is a series of sales this month in London, in Paris and New York, um, and looking at literature, illustration and musical manuscripts. And they cover every continent and every topic, and they're wonderful. Now, today, uh, we're going to be talking about Jane Austen. Who else? Uh, now, Jane Austen, you will probably all know, was born in 1775. She died in 1817 when she was only 41. And although there are juvenilia and there are some unfinished novels, her enormous reputation, in a way, is based on only six works of fiction, which is incredible. And she has continued to have an enormous influence on writers um, of all different genres ever since then. You know, there are two um, grandes dames, I suppose, of literature, both sadly no longer with us. Faye Weldon, back in 1984, uh, wrote in Letters to Alice uh, that she was actually a gentle writer. You should not be misled. And Hilary Mantel, in 1998, wrote an essay called Not Everybody's Dear Jane and talked about how she was much more subversive than sometimes she was presented. But what we're going to do today, I have contemporary literary, literary lionesses, that's you two, um, who are brilliant uh, contemporary novelists who have used Jane Austen's uh, as an inspiration for their own fiction and in some ways non-fiction as well. Um, and I can't wait to hear what you're going to say. And so I have um, with me Helen Fielding, who is the author of the multi-multi-million selling series, Bridget Jones' Diary, Bridget Jones' The Edge of Reason, Bridget Jones, Mad About the Boy, and Bridget Jones's Baby. There's a theme here. Um, <laughs> and she was also, of course, the co-writer of the Bridget Jones movies. And this wonderful uh, piece of information, in a survey conducted by the Guardian newspaper, Bridget Jones's diary was named as one of the 10 novels, just 10, that defined the 20th century. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes, a round of applause. <laughs> Whoa, I agree. But no less literary lionessy is Jill Hornby, uh, who is the author of four amazing novels, including uh, the novel Miss Austin, uh, which was a number one bestseller and named one of the best novels of 2020 by The Times and The Observer, and also Goddishman Park, which was another uh, huge bestseller in uh, 2022, and also you've written The Hive, um, and all together now, and a biography of uh, Jane Austen for younger readers called The Story of Jane Austen. So another round of applause for Jill. Jill. And the final literary lioness of the panel is Kalika Sands. Uh, Kalika is the international specialist in the books and manuscripts department here at Sotheby's. 
Uh, she did her DPhil at Oxford, where her research focused on the intersections of British literature and the history of science and medicine. And during her time at Sotheby, she's been involved in many important collections, including that of Barbara and Ira Lippmann, Dorothy Tapper Goldman, and most recently, Bibliotheca Brookeram. I knew I wasn't going to be able to say that. I nearly crossed it out. <laughs> Will you say it for us, Kalika? Uh, Bibliotheca Brookeriana. There we are. You see, it was a hard word. Uh, uh, final round of applause, and then we'll get going. <laughs> there you are, a woman of many, many talents. Now, uh, we're going to talk amongst ourselves for about half an hour or so, as if you were not there. Um, and then there will be some time for audience questions at the end. So save up your questions and leap in because you know the time will go very, very fast if you, and you'll be very sad if you don't get to ask your question. Right. Icebreaker question, Helen. When did you fall in love with Jane Austen? Well, I think there's a distinction between when I fell in love with Jane Austen and when I fell in love with Mr. Darcy. Um, but I think I fell in love with Jane Austen when I was about 17 and a schoolgirl in Leeds and was like horrified by what I was being asked to read, which was sort of Tristram Shandy and Gulliver's Travels and being told that it was funny. And then opened this book and from the very first line, which we all know, I thought this is brilliant. This is a woman writer who's actually still funny and she was writing centuries ago. And it was so spunky and perceptive and funny and romantic and a woman who was full of spirits and humour and principle and not afraid to stand up to bossy men. I just thought it was great. And, and it always stayed with me as a perfectly pitched voice that, that I wanted to kind of copy. Did you imagine yourself as Elizabeth Bennet? Yes, very much so. Elizabeth Bennet and Maria from The Sound of Music, oh, who I think are very similar in many ways, as are Mr. Darcy and Captain Von Trapp. But that's another story. That is there. That would be a great story, actually. I'd what like to mix them together. Well, it could be the literary time travellers, wives and husbands. <laughs> could muffin them all up together. Do that's great. a great idea. Yeah, well, they want to that. You heard it here first, ladies. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, Jill, what about you? When did you fall in love with Jane Austen? Well, I fell in love with the novels at school um, when they first came into my life. My English teacher, I was an incredibly uncivilised child. And then I got this English teacher when I was 16 who'd done her thesis on Jane Austen and she sort of used the novels of Austen as an instrument with which to civilise me somehow. Anyway, it kind of half worked as an experiment. But then I fell in love with her as a person when I was, you know, much later on, about 20 years later, when I read the letters and I thought, oh, hello, you could, you know, I get you, you could be my mate. You're, I mean, she's... I. Her voice and her spirit and, and her concerns, actually, in the letters, which were all really about how annoying your mother is and whether that hat, you know, oh, my God, I look a fright in that hat, that sort of thing. I just felt, I just thought I really got on with her as a, as a person. So it was a kind of long process. So what once, it, can you remember the first novel you read? The first one, well... I had Northanger Abbey for O level, and that's not, you know, I mean, Northanger Abbey. I think like a very bad Northanger Abbey. Whatever. And then, um, <laughs> right, you know, I'm the chair, don't you? <laughs> I'm asking really difficult questions now. Then along came Mansfield Park. Then, then came Sense of Sensibility. And actually, it, you know, then reached a peak, a climax, really, with, um, with Pride and Prejudice. 
brilliant. Mm. And Kaliko, did did you study her at school or you different education system maybe? I didn't. Um, so Jane Austen isn't necessarily assigned in school. Sometimes Pride and Prejudice is. But I happened across a paperback of Sense and Sensibility when I was about 12, I suppose. And I grew up in a house we were always encouraged to read. But I started that and I just thought, this is the most phenomenal thing I've ever read. Why isn't every book this? <laughs> and so as soon as I finished that, which I think I skipped out on a piano lesson because I just couldn't put it down. Um, so I'm sorry about that, Mom. But then I had to read everything. So next was Pride and Prejudice. And I still remember where I was when we have the chapter that Mr. Darcy crosses Mr. Wickham in the street. And you know, there's just a fantastic plot twist that's about to come. So, yeah, I, I started and then it has just remained with me for, you know, for decades now. And is uh, they're the same kind of um, moment of acknowledgement in young American or Canadian or, you know, women when they come across Austin? Or were you special, as it were? You know, could you talk to friends saying, have you read this yet? Absolutely. Uh, so my closest friend growing up, she lived two houses down the street. We watched the BBC Pride and Prejudice obsessively. And we would trade books back and forth. So I think that's one of the wonderful things about Austin. It just sort of her writing transcends ages and countries and, and genders and everything. So, yes, I absolutely had a good core group of friends that I could talk to Austin about. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely idea. Now, I mean, this particular talk is about how Jane Austen changed people's lives. And I have to own up here that Jane Austen did change my life, but not quite in the way that we're going to carry on talking about in that it was my first uh, relationship with Intelligence Squared, uh, which was I was asked to do a debate against Jane Austen. Because often there is the idea that there's only one or two women who write. And so therefore, if you're pro-Jane Austen, you must be anti-Emily Bronte. I know. And if you're pro-Emily Bronte, you must be anti-Jane Austen. And I was on the Bronte team. And it was my biggest uh, success because although... Jane Austen still won because there was a vote. She, she won by very little. I had almost swung the entire room by the end. Um, so I'm very proud of that. But it's a very interesting point, actually, about the idea that it's got to be either or rather than what about reading both of them. They're, they're, they're such different writers. Anyway, so that is my um, how Jane Austen changed my life because obviously Intelligence Squared has been a very important part of my life since then. So that's how she changed my life. Helen, how did she change your well? We can imagine, but tell us how she changed your life. <laughs> well, she changed my life because I stole her plot. Yes. So, <laughs> was it? <laughs> when I started writing Bridget Jones, it was just a series of anonymous columns in the independent newspaper. And I didn't say it was me because I was trying to be a serious political journalist. <laughs> and I thought they were really silly and no one would read them. But then they suddenly got some popularity to the point where my publisher said, why don't you make them into a book? But there was no plot, and I'm hopeless at plots. And at the same moment, the BBC's Pride and Prejudice, which you saw, was on the TV, and the streets were empty on Sunday night. Yeah. And everyone was going around growling, Mr. Darcy, Mr. Darcy. So I sort of morphed the columns into Pride and Prejudice and made this character, Mark Darcy, who was Mr. Darcy, and always ultimately, ultimately Colin Firth as well, this kind of hybrid creature. And so <laughs> I just don't think he's ever been described as a hybrid creature. <laughs> he's a mixture with Mr. Darcy and Mark Darcy and Colin Firth. But anyway, the the 
columns became a book and it was entirely based plot-wise and to a degree character-wise on Pride and Prejudice. So she completely changed my life. And why did you know or how did you have the instinct that it was an evergreen plot, that it would work for now? You know, 200 years and more has passed uh, since Jane Austen died. Well, I didn't really and I don't think anyone really ever knows anything. I never thought that book would become anything. But actually, in hindsight, it is a, a pretty foolproof plot. And that's why it's been adapted. There's been 17, I think, film, TV adaptations at least. And those are just the ones that are Pride and Prejudice, not Pride and Prejudice, the zombie movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's just an extremely solid plot and set of characters. And you can't, you have to work quite hard to muck it up. <laughs> well, you didn't muck it up. It's absolutely extraordinary. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Um, Jill, changed your life. Is that too true, a bit strong? What do you think? She probably has a bit right there. I mean, I'm... I was an incredibly, I was come very late to this game. I didn't start writing novels till I was in my 50s. But I, um, I was writing a column and I got the boot and I was 51 and nobody employs a 51-year-old woman. So I thought, oh, well, I'd better write a novel then. <laughs> and I thought, then I thought, how do you do that? And because I'd written that biography of Jane Austen for children, it's quite annoying writing a short book because you have to know everything you need to know to write a long book and then choose what to leave out. And so I knew her basic principles, you know, and, and that when she herself had come to write a novel, had said three or four families in a country village is the very thing to work on. And, and of course, she was right about that. Like, she's right about everything. It is the, the most perfect basis for, for a novel. It's the basis of EastEnders. It's the basis of Con Coronation Street. They're not country villages, but they're three or four families, cheap by jowl, dependent on one another. And we all know from our own lives, you know, once people start having children and their children have children, it throws up enough drama to keep us all on the edge of our seats until we don't know what's, you know, it's amazing, isn't it? All, all of what our friends' kids get up to and our own children get up to and so on. So so there was that. And then 
30 years ago, we bought this house, this this um, vicarage in Berkshire, and I was told that there was a Jane Austen connection to it. Um, which I kind of thought probably they all had vicarages in Berkshire because she was a vicar's daughter and, you know, they go flitting around having tea and that's what they did. But in fact, the connection was with her sister who had been engaged to the son of the vicar and then he died and it was all very heartbreaking and terrible. And she, that from that moment, just sort of donned black and said, that's it, I'm a spinster. And from she, Cassandra, owning her spinsterhood, it enables Jane to become a spinster, to, to embrace her own spinsterhood. And, and Cassandra protected her throughout Jane's life until Jane died in Cassandra's arms. And she was she was the absolute midwife of of the novels, and I became very Team Cassandra then, when when I discovered all of that, and it gave me the idea for Miss Austen about putting the case for her, and I'm now writing a. Then I wrote Godmersham Park, which is about Jane Austen's relationship with her niece's governess, which um is all sort of true and document vaguely documented, and I'm I'm now writing a, another one about about her niece when she was growing up. So it has given me... Yeah, sort of... Material. Fuel and nourishment, I suppose. Enormous, enormous. One of the things that is so interesting about the longevity of Jane Austen is, do you think she is misunderstood? That quite often people talk about, you know, their romance novels. But there's a lot more to all of the novels, really, than that. I mean, that that's kind of... The architecture, in some respects, but it's not—it's not what the book is about only, is it? No, not at all. I mean, you know, there's only a few stories. There's sort of six or ten basic stories, and the romantic plot is one of them. But what she hands on it is is so not chiclet. And um, you know, she often is—it's appalling—but she is sort of pushed into into that chiclet sort of bonnets, female only area but she I think she once said she was writing on a little piece of ivory or something she tells you this small story as you say about a small group of people sociologically and politically she's she's also telling you about the war about the the position of women financially and their plight if they haven't got enough money to exist without being married she's so perceptive about people and even I think she was only 21 when she wrote Pride and Prejudice she she sets out her stall on people you know she'll say vanity was the beginning and the end of Sir Walter Elliot's character Mr Darcy was clever Mr Collins was not a sensible man she she's very sort of clear and moral she has these great comic characters she has great comedy set pieces which is why her books translate so well to movies and she's really perceptive about human nature and also very kind and decent and moral. It's not a bitter voice. She she is full of warmth and a lack of pretension and and humour and sort of female solidarity. There's a huge amount about female oh, friendship in, in the books. Um, so I think they would they stand up with anything else. I think she's a, a terrific, she's my favourite writer. <laughs> yeah. That's not surprising, one way or another. <laughs> yeah, I owe her. Yeah, big time, yeah. 
Jill. Yeah, I think the romantic fiction is very much her shop window and she's got so many other things to say. I mean, the reason I write, like writing about her and Cassandra and, and is, is because I'm fascinated by the women of that time, their utter powerlessness. And Jane's novels are about the powerlessness of women, really. I think we read them all wrong, in a way. We read them from the comfort and the strength of our situation of being educated and being resourceful and so on. But when a, when a contemporary reader would have started Pride and Prejudice, they would have seen, you know, the entailed proper, property and the five daughters. That is your basic mother's nightmare. You know, they're reading a horror story. What on earth are they going to do with these five girls? We think it's a lark. And and the BBC Pride and Prejudice, faultless, beautiful work of genius, it really, really undermines Mrs. Bennett, I think. Who, well, yeah, in a way, I is so probably agree. Jane Austen's heroine. It's not yeah, yeah. Bennett. It's, Je it's, it's Mrs. Bennett who understands that those five girls are in serious jeopardy. And, you know, so Jane and Lizzie possibly could have been governesses. Those other three, they were off on the game if anything happened to their father. <laughs> they really are about to fall through the floorboards of life, as is Anne Elliot, because Walter Elliot's got rid of her, you know, and, and Fanny Price has absolutely no social capital. These, these women are in danger and they are rescued by their wits as well as by their menfolk. They are rescued, them, the men respond to what is good and great about those women and they are saved. Um, Mrs. It's Mrs. Bennett's triumph is, is actually what Pride and Prejudice is about. And because Mr. Bennett was played by that really twinkly actor and he's got those great lines, you know, some of the greatest lines in literature, we all think, oh, Mr. Bennett, and we all think, mm, she's so stupid. But actually, he's terrible. He's just, you know, sitting in the library, doesn't care about them. Whether they live or die, can't be asked to go up. Excuse me, up the road to 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 see to see the men in the big house, and and he's just condemning them to death. So I think we don't understand that. And then and then she litters. Apart from the sort of glossy heroines, she litters the text with people like Mrs. Smith in Emma, who's as duck in her bed sit, you know, with a servant calling once a day because it's all gone wrong. And Miss Bates, you know, it's. It, who Emma laughs at and really and, and it could it can go wrong in a matter of totally totally it can be fine and then it's not Calico I yeah. can see you oh no I was going to say Miss Bennett um as well when you look at Mr Bennett he's functionally negligent and then when you have he's the Bates as well I think Austin's making a very interesting point yeah. you have Emma laughing at Miss Bates and she doesn't sort of have that wit to contend with the other male characters so that you know I think she's also maybe giving some sort of cautionary tale that if you don't have wit and you don't have education that you kind of seek out on your own, you will also be left behind. I mean, if a, for, for a woman, if you didn't get married and if your brother or, for, you know, if your brother or any relative didn't want to keep you, you had these options. You had becoming a governess. Well, not everybody was educated or, or you know, equipped to be a governess. Then there was being companion to an elderly lady. Nightmare. Um, and not only that, short-term occupation, because then they died. And and then after that, it was just prostitution. And I did an event with a, a Regency historian a couple of years ago who said that in 1810, the prostitute population of London was 800,000, you know, and the population of London wasn't that big. Um, 
and and a lot of these, you know, a lot of they were eight year old girls. They were just people who weren't being protected by men. Well, yes, because this, I mean, this is all the period of time before Caroline Norton and those significant, you know, the Custody of Infants Act, the Married Women's Property Act, where women started to have any sort of agency and power um, over things. But one of the interesting things is that it was one of those moments of uh, there not being enough men to go round anyway. It's like after the First World War. So I think it's something like only 30% of women were actually married. So there's often within both the novels and Jane's life, the idea that it was exceptional, that she was unmarried and lived with her sister. But actually that was more likely than not, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think that that, that has perhaps contributed to this sort of idea which was still lingering when I started writing Bridget, that if a woman is single, there's been some horrible mistake. And, yeah. you know, and she is sort of, there are shelves and spinning wheels and shades of Miss Habersham hanging around <laughs> and you're going to end up dying alone and being found three weeks later half-eaten by an Alsatian. Yes. And, you know, I think as, as, as Jewel has pointed out that it, you know, you said that getting married in Jane Austen's day was a bit of a death sentence because you could end up having 11 children and people often died in childbirth. If you got so married at 17, quite... then you had, what, 23 pregnancies in you? If you got married at 17 and your husband liked you, then then um, you you could, you know, you would, you would be in pig for the rest of your days. And all, of all of her sisters-in-law, they all copped it in childbirth on the 8th the ninth mm. and the eleventh babies, that they died, and that was the come. It was a death sentence. So, so you had you did have to think several times about whether to accept the person in that you barely knew him anyway. And especially if he was a ghastly creep like Mr. Collins in Prejudice Collins, Mr. Collins, and um, Wickham. You know the sort of the the double the. the the um, sexy bastard that everyone falls for, you know, they, they did have to think twice. But they didn't know them very well. They'd dance with them a few times. They'd be on their own when they were proposed to. And then they were carted off, you know. Um, you you went off to live where your husband lived. So their mother would become your mother and their house would be your house. It was quite a, it's quite a big deal, really. It's a um, in terms of... Uh, the novels themselves and why they have this incredibly enduring appeal. And we're going to talk in a moment to Kalika about the the wonderful books that are part of the book week um, and why people are, are still so passionate about Jane Austen and all of her work. It's There is just something that is, uh, she is both utterly of her time and utterly bigger than any particular time. That's right, isn't it, in terms of the way that she writes her stories and her plots. So, what is it that makes a relatively innocent but a, a woman who lived quite a confined life within the south of England for the most part a universal voice? What is it? I think she, when she wrote, she was in her absolute moment in terms of her voice and her understanding of human nature of what exactly was going on around her and where everyone fitted and what was funny about it. And I think that is what has endured alongside her perfect 
plotting. She wrote books that turned the pages, but it was that understanding of human nature. And that is what I, I'm always very against the divide between fiction and literary fiction. You know, literary fiction can sometimes be the thing where you read the same paragraph over and over again and don't remember that you've read it. And, you know, if you go to the other end of popular fiction, it has no meaning. But she married the two and she she managed to make stories where you wanted to know what happened next. But it was the the depths of understanding of human nature and human life and people and the world that elevated it above that. Because humour is one of the things that dates most quickly. Humour just weirdly does. I mean, even my children, the things that they look at on YouTube, they only want the 10 funniest seconds. Sometimes I, I remember making them watch things I used to think were funny, sitcoms and Monty Python, they're just not funny anymore. And, you know, a lot of old comic novels don't stand the test of time, but she does. And that's, that's kind of magical. They're yeah. good jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Jill, you've used the real life, as it were, as your inspiration. Um, is that because you felt that it was important to put the woman more visibly centre stage as opposed to the adaptations and the, you know, the, the we're, we're never watching Jane when we're watching a Pride and Prejudice or an Emma or a Sense and Sensibility, but there is always somehow the idea that she's lurking in the background. Yes, I, I mean, my degree was in history rather than English and I do remember sort of getting to the end of the three years and thinking, goodness me, they were all men. You know, that, that entire three years was about what men had done and what men had said and what men had... And I had this enormous interest in women's lives, which have been largely unrecorded, and so we know so little about them. And what I love about the novels in this, is what a social record they are of, of what women's lives were like. And we don't have fantastic diaries of, of women in the 19th century. They didn't have time to write them. That's why. And anyway, nobody would have treasured them in the way, you know, and brought them down to us through the generations, the way they have their grandfathers. And so those novels are a fantastic, I think, original source on what it was like to be a woman, a domestic woman, a certain sort of comfort of a certain class in a certain area. And so writing about her gives me that that sort of canvas to it to explore that and then to honor the style of her and so on but their stories I find they are the most extraordinary family you know this Mr. Austin was was just a vicar in in Hampshire but he was extraordinary he was an orphan and and a genius I mean he had no money at all and then he got to he went to Oxford and was the greatest class classicist of his generation and then he married this woman and and they went off to be a to, to to this parish in Steventon and they had eight children and they were amazing. They were amazing children. Um, and n nobody even knew that Jane was, was the best of them. You know, certainly the eldest son who thought he was the literary top dog and sort of, mm -hmm. he thought he was the big news. But there were two admirals, you know, one fought at Trafalgar. They, they, they were a really astonishing bunch. And then not Jane and Cassandra, but all the brothers went on to have thousands of nieces and nephews. Mm -hmm. If you like a family saga, which I do, you know, something like the Caslip 
Chronicles, something like that, the best thing ever, then the Austins are marvellous because um, it's all there. It's absolutely all there, What the the human comedy and, and drama and tragedy. Do, do you wish that her sister had loved her less and thought of the future more and hadn't burnt so many of the letters? No, because everything would be different. If we thought that, you know, if... So Cassandra... Cassandra outlived Jane and 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 before her own death sat down with the thousands and thousands of letters they'd exchanged and burnt all of Cassandra's to Jane and then burnt all but 160 of Jane's to Cassandra and the biographers lose her for that because of all of the gaps it's left in her history. But, you know... She was not, Jane was not a person who would have liked her diaries to be discovered and serialised in the Daily Mail. That really wasn't. She was an absolute, it's so interesting to encounter her in this awful world that we live in where people want to be famous for nothing. You know, for just going on telly in a bikini for six weeks and that makes them famous. And that's just, and Jane was writing the greatest novels in the English language and she didn't want anybody to know. There was this woman in the village called Miss Ben, poor Miss Ben, she was always called who was blind, so they had to take it in turns to go and read her. And in 1815, when it was the sort of Bridget Jones of the summer, Miss Ben said she wanted this read to her, Pride and Prejudice, and she actually had the author of Pride and Prejudice reading it to her <laughs> and saying, what? You know, I don't think that bit's very far. It's all very overrated, that sort of thing. And she kept it buttoned because she did. she wouldn't tell a soul. Her nieces and nephews didn't know she, she'd written it. So it wasn't until after she died that anybody knew that that timid little woman in Hampshire was who did. So it's completely in keeping for us not to know how infuriated she was by her sister-in-law, Mary, or how depressed she was that she wanted to die. You know, that's really not what... Complete separation of the work yes, and the person. Yes, I mean, it, it, it's... None of our business. I mean, it's one of the things... I mean, it, it's not unusual... Um, at that time, that books appeared without the author's name on on the frontispiece anyway. So four of the novels were published um, without a name on them. Although as, after Sense and Sensibility, which had been successful, it had uh, by the author of Sense and Sensibility, and then Northanger Abbey, I, I believe, um, and uh, what uh, Persuasion was it? that was published posthumously. Yeah, yeah, they were published together. Yeah, as, as as a set. <laughs> so Kalika, um, as an expert here. Um, and a Jane Austen lover as well. Her reputation during her lifetime, as Jill and Helen have been saying, nobody really knew her, and the books weren't successful, and she was quite frustrated mm-hmm. by that. So what happened to make her go from being, you know, the, the lady sitting in Hampshire scribbling away Absolutely. to being a, a, you know, a superstar? It, it's sort of a, a rocky journey, I suppose, in some ways. that has some ups and downs. So... As you say, during her lifetime, there were relatively few reviews of her novels. They weren't unfavorable, but she wasn't wildly successful like her male peers. And then about 50 years after her death, there was a biography written of her um, by a a nephew, and that sort of helped bump her popularity up again. So there was interest towards the end of the Victorian period. It wasn't really until about 1920 that there was a new critical edition of Jane Austen, and that was the first time that there was this real scholarly attention around her writing. But and why, sorry, why did that happen? 
Why was there a scholarly edition then? I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah, that's a great question. So as Jill has alluded to, there's very little original manuscript material that remained. In the way books were published at the time, there were often a lot of liberties that were taken by the editor, the person that was setting the, the type. And so I think that by that point, especially sort of surrounding World War I, when Jane's popularity sort of surged again, so her works were actually assigned to soldiers who had experienced PTSD related to the war, who were in the trenches. So there was kind of this elite group of people who were always interested in Austen and who were always reading her. So I think from that, then there became a more sort of general popularity, and then that led to the scholarly edition. So it's not that she was ever completely off the scene, as it were. But then certainly by the you know 1950s or so, there was a lot more critical attention that was paid, a lot more scholarly attention, and people were writing theses on, on Austen. And then certainly in the 90s, I think the BBC Pride and Prejudice did not hurt. I think the Amatozins, yes, that shirt. The wet shirt. The wet shirt. I think that in conjunction with Emma Thompson's Sense and Sensibility, suddenly Jane Austen was on bestseller lists again and just had this incredible resurgence of popularity. And I think in a, a sort of scholarly capacity, now people are doing much more work trying to sort of figure out what Jane Austen was reading, what performances was she seeing, and how does this kind of intertextual life of hers work as well? And in conjunction with that, the demand for her books has also skyrocketed. So a first edition that would have sold, you know, maybe 30 years ago now is worth two or three times as much, or maybe more in some instances. Certainly at the time that she was published, something like Sense and Sensibility, which was her first published work, there were only 750 copies of the first edition, and they were published in boards that you were meant to buy it and then have it rebound so it matched the style of your library. So those boards were meant to be ephemeral. Um, and so if you can find something in the original publisher's boards, that's absolutely as you can close as you can get to the original publication state, and I think arguably as close as you can get to Austin. So we have Sense and Sensibility that was about 750. Then we have Pride and Prejudice, and that really wasn't much more. So it's closer to 1,000, and now that's you know, by far and away everybody's favorite. So you can imagine the sort of demand to find a first edition of Pride and Prejudice full stop, but also one in, in the publisher's boards. Then Mansfield Park, which sold the best during Austin's lifetime, and I think now maybe is read the least. That might be a controversial statement, but I think that could be true. Um, but there's a lot about the Enclosures Act in it, there, which yes. is possibly a little bit of its time. Exactly. So, trying to sell that to undergraduates now is, is a little bit more difficult. Um, but that is astonishingly rare. So finding that in the original publisher's boards, I think only two copies have come up in the last 70 years or so. So I think along with um, our more sort of scholarly appreciation for Jane Austen, the demand for these books has just skyrocketed because we really do see them as treasures. We see them as as close as we can get to the author. And if you love Jane Austen, if her prose have sort of transformed your life, that is absolutely the thing that you, you want to have. And we've got on the screen, you've bought some books with you. I have, um, yes. Are, they, are, they, these are, are these in the, the sale? These are in the this December one? sale. In They're York. in the December sale. Yes. Um, so can you just talk us through a little bit about what we have? So that because there are there are things called the association copy and there are mm -hmm. different types of copies. What does what do those things mean? Absolutely. So the association copy, it's um, 
1791 edition of Disraeli's Curiosities of Literature. So that obviously was not written by Austen, but what's extraordinary about it is that it's signed by her on the title page. So there are very few books that we know of that were owned by Austen. Um, I think, again, as, as Jill has suggested, there's just very little evidence of her life. So we know that there are books that she gave to nieces and to her brother, and those are more sorts of presentation copies. I think this is particularly extraordinary because it's a book about literature that she probably owned quite early in her life. Um, and this is something that she cared enough about to write her own name in. So this is truly an extraordinary survival, and we are just absolutely thrilled to have it alongside these other first editions, which in general, having first editions of all of her published works together in one sale, I think hasn't happened in, you know, probably decades, maybe. It's, it's really extraordinary to see them all together. And do all of you, do you see, as time goes on, you know, Bridget Jones' diary, one of the 10 novels of the 20th century, according to go. I think that's just so fantastic. Um, but do you all feel that her enduring appeal will just continue, that regardless of what literary movements are out there, what people are doing in the world and all of the rest of it, that there will still be some corner of all of our hearts that will always belong to Jane Austen. And I think it's quite interesting because you actually don't really know. And I think it, it's interesting the number of writers that didn't know how successful their work was going to be. Like, it's a really brilliant book called Hemingway on Writing, little bits of his letters. And he's always writing to Scott Fitzgerald to try and cheer him up about how meaning the reviewers were. Now, no one loving books of... Everyone thought The Great Gatsby was rubbish and Tender in the Night was rubbish. And, and then look what happened. There's, they're still huge, but there is a sort of slight geisty thing. There is something you can't quite put your finger on. Like when I wrote those Bridget columns, I had no idea that it was going to become popular. And lots of other people were writing the same sort of thing at the same time. So there will be a reason why this century and the end of the last century was when Jane Austen became hugely popular. Maybe it was something to do with what has been going on with women at the moment. Maybe it's that. Maybe the next century, it won't be that. Maybe there won't even be books anymore. You know, I'm sorry, <laughs> but we have to face the fact that, you know, AI, things are changing the way young people read I mean what do they actually read do they read books or do they watch things but storytelling and creativity is like water it finds a path so the answer is we really don't know but at the moment I'd love to know how many books she sold do you know I mean does anyone know there are some records so Sense and Sensibility um, sold relatively well Pride and Prejudice I think sold out in within a year, and so there was a second edition issued. Mansfield Park sold very well. Emma did not, which is interesting because I think now Emma is viewed as... You, know, you think she less sympathetic as a heroine? I think that's absolutely true, which we know that she said that she was going to create a heroine which nobody but herself would like much. And I think in some ways it's because it's the heroine who maybe most resembles her mm -hmm. um, and her snarky attitudes. <laughs> oh, that's the people that I was thought she was Lizzie Bennet. But I mean, do you know how many books she's sold altogether in the world, ever? Oh, think? ever. There are lists, yes. really. Um, whether they are in any way accurate. The, I mean, the only 
one I can tell you is that the biggest selling author in world history is a woman, but it's Agatha Christie. Yes. yes. <laughs> and estimates vary between 2 billion and 4 billion, which seems to be quite a wide <laughs> uh, margin <laughs> fairer. But um, anyway, she, she wins, but there, there are lists and, and Jane Austen is in those lists. But there's a, a little bit of sucking it and see, isn't there? Because But Austen is like Agatha Christie's is the same in that the they are their works are perfectly uh, tailored to movies and t- and TV, and that's why really that she is going. To, she has had this enormous burst in the last fifty years and could go on forever because in fact they're just perfect films and they're but perfect. It, it's also so. Uh, this is, I'm about to use a word that I really really dislike, but it's, we'll forgive you. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's that terrible word, relatable. Yes. But is there an element of the fact that these are stories that anybody could be in? Yes. You know, they're, it, they're not set on a spaceship or going into battle or, you know, they are everybody. Well, that's what her great bitterness in her life was she had the great misfortune to be writing at the same time as Walter Scott, who couldn't, you know, they weren't wheelbarrows big enough for as much money as he was bringing home every afternoon. He was so popular, it was ridiculous. But he said, and here's, a, you know, his huge epic, epic stories, enormously big, big canvases. But he himself said when he reviewed Emma, he said, I can do the big bow wow as well as anyone. But she is the one who does the little piece of ivory thing. And I think that's so brilliant, the big bow wow, because the big, it's the big bow wow that doesn't last, in fact. And it's stories about... God, your mother's annoying and the next door neighbour's really nosy and and I really fancy that bloke up the road. That is the universality of her and it is the actually tiny tininess of, of her of her universe that makes her so enduring. I think what's quite interesting there is when when you ask that question, could anyone be in it? What about men? You know, there's so many books talking about Hemingway again, I don't quite know why, but but his is this your next project? <laughs> Copy. I, I quite like that, that actually. Yeah, not my own. Um, his women are very cardboard cutout-ish, and I don't know how much men would identify with Mister Darcy. You know how, what is actually going on in his head? I, I always remember when um, I was talking to Andrew Davis, who adapted the Pride and Prejudice for the BBC in '95. His whole theory was that Mr. Darcy had the most enormous sex drive, which explained all his behavior with Elizabeth Bennet, that he was just overcome with desire. And that's where there were all those mad scenes when he marched into the room and just walk around and not say anything. So he couldn't think about anything else. Risk sitting but, out, I see. But, but you know, she sort of, she looks at men and gives them a label, a sensible man, not a sensible man, vain, kind, clever, otherwise, but I don't know how much she actually gets into their heads. But as a woman, you could totally always be one of the women in in those books. I think there's a distinction there. Yeah. Well, I, I think if Jane Austen were here, uh, she would probably be quiet at the back and not uh, say who she was. Uh, but the fact that we are sitting here, you know, more than 200 years after she died, talking about these characters as if we know them. Um, is a testament to the quite extraordinary power of those novels, I think. 
Um, we have come to the end of our event, I'm afraid, um, but it has been a complete joy uh, to listen to you all and to hear your different views. And there we do come up and look at the books. Uh, but could you please join me in giving a huge round of applause for Helen Fielding, for Jill Hornby and for Kanika Sands. And just to say, if you'd like to know more about what is coming up on Sotheby's, I think we've got some on the uh, the screen. Uh, the Fine Books and Manuscripts auction will take place in New York on the 22nd of November at 10 a.m. Uh, EST. And included in that is um, each of Jane Austen's finished novels, as you've said, Austen's own copy of the Isaac Disraeli's um, Curiosities of Literature, which we saw up on the screen, signed by her on the title page, first editions of each of the Bronte sisters' finished novels. Yes, I'm in. Um, a presentation copy of Charles Dickens's Great Expectations, which we have talked about before, and wonderfully, Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone um, in the original cloth and many, many other works. And you can go online and I'm sure see the whole thing. And if you are here in the galleries, this is the Leslie and Joanna Garfield collection, Celebration of David Hockney. And the live auction for this uh, will take place here in London on the 15th of November at 2pm uh, GMT. So you can scan everything on your card if you've got a QR code on your printed card on your seat. Uh, so that will give you all the information you need. Uh, but once again, thanks to you for being such a wonderful and warm audience and for your questions. To Intelligence Squared and to Sotheby's for making these fantastic coming together of readers and writers um, so pleasurable. And again, this extraordinary panel, Kalika, Jill and Helen. Thanks for listening to Intelligent Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligent Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligentsquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue, featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligentsquared.com.